this is Bill Obers Jr. from Take This Lollipop and A Million Horror Movies. Don't be scared. You're listening to Then Is Now Podcast. Hi, this is Rigor, host of Then Is Now Podcast and The East Meets the West. I just wanted to say thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. We appreciate your support as we grow the audience for our shows. You could find our links to our Patreon page as well as our Tee Public page at havenpodcasts.com. With Patreon, you'll get a lot of exclusive stuff, including our monthly pop culture newsletter, cool gifts, discounts for Tee Public, and our special exclusive show, Then Is Now Filmmakers series, in which we interview directors, producers, writers, composers, special effects guys, basically anybody who works behind the scenes in film and television, and get their insights into the process of creating films and TV shows. Also at our Tee Public page, you'll find cool merch that you can get or even give to others as gifts. You can find those links at our website, or you can go directly to tpublic.com slash stores slash havenpodcasts and patreon.com slash thenisnowpodcast. Enjoy! Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. Warning! Warning! Today's episode contains spoilers! So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. Welcome to 13 Days of Halloween. <laughs> Welcome to this special episode of Then Is Now Podcast. I am your host, Rigor. Today, I am joined by a previous guest on the show, horror author James Harberson. Welcome back to the show, James. Great to be here. Thanks. Awesome. Glad you could join me today. So when you were on the show last, we discussed your book, A Disgusting, a Disgusting Supermarket of Death. Uh, what have you got going on now? Right now, I have a short story coming out, I think this year. Uh, have you ever heard of the the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights podcast. I've heard the title, but I've never actually listened to the show. Well, they they produced a book of 30 short horror stories, and I contributed to that. And it's the galleys are available, and, it, you know, it's I'm, I get the feeling, or from what I'm told by the publisher, them, uh, it should be out shortly. So we'll nice. see what happens. I'm... You know, I'm looking forward to it because I, I wrote a, uh, I wrote a short story called Daddy Issues for it, in which, it's the the book is based on traditional horror tropes, and mine is the, uh, mine is the, um, the the, the haunted room, you know what happens in the haunted room. So, uh, I I will leave the rest to people's imaginations, but uh, I think that if you've read my stuff, it'll, it's it's very much in keeping with that. So. Horror and mirth. Excellent, excellent. We'll have to have you come back and talk more about it when it comes out. 
That'd be great. Thank you. Awesome. I'm also working on some horror novellas and, uh, you know, we'll see, you know, I'm, you know, I'm finishing those up, so we'll see what happens. Sounds good, man. Good to hear that you're keeping busy and getting things going. Okay, so we are continuing our yearly event called 13 Days of Hallowtober. Our theme this year is modern zombie films, and what that means is that we're not going to cover zombie films from before 1968, like White Zombie, Teenage Zombies, and dozens of others, you know, those Bela Lugosi films. Rather, we are covering the ones that came after and were inspired by George Romero's Night of the Living Dead in 1968. Now, Night of the Living Dead not only set up the rules for modern zombies, it's had a lasting effect on horror filmmaking for over the last 50 years. Today, we are going to cover the 1988 buddy cop action zombie comedy, I'm sorry, the 1988 buddy cop action zombie comedy film, Dead Heat, starring Treat Williams and Joe Piscopo. Class is in session. There's definitely something very weird going on here. Detective Roger Mortis. Has a problem. He's dead. But Detective Bigelow is bringing him back alive. We have something on the monitor, Captain. That's okay. Don't get up. Told you not to get up. Now, He's got 12 hours to solve the toughest murder case of his career. His own. What is this thing? Very ugly. Get down! Remember the good old days when guns killed people? That's it. From now on, I'm a vegetarian. How do you fight this thing? Maybe we could drown it in A1 sauce. Treat Williams. Sit down. And Joe Piscopo are dead heat. You shoot them, they don't die. You can't keep a good cop dead. Detectives Roger Mortis and Doug Bigelow are called to the scene of a rather violent jewelry store robbery. The robbers take on a squadron of police in a messy shootout, but neither seem affected when they are riddled with bullets. Thanks to the combined, albeit extreme, measures of Mortis and Bigelow, they're able to take out the criminals, their acts narrowly avoiding termination from the force. Meanwhile, a coroner friend of Roger's, Rebecca, informs the detectives that the two bodies they've brought in had previously been to the morgue. Not only do they have autopsy scars, but she herself clearly remembers performing the autopsies and has the pictures to prove it, suggesting that they simply got up and left the morgue of their own volition. There's a preservative chemical compound found in the bodies that connect the pair of detectives to a company that had ordered a great amount of it recently. Mortis and Bigelow investigate and meet the company's head public relations person, Randy James, who gives them a tour of the facility. When Doug wanders off to investigate a suspicious room, he encounters the reanimated corpse of a biker on a strange machine. The biker attacks him, and in the fray, Roger's knocked into a decompression room used to humanely kill failed test animals and is asphyxiated to death. Encountering the machine and realizing it is capable of bringing people back from the dead, Rebecca and Doug successfully resurrect Roger. He says he feels terrific, yet he has no heartbeat and his skin is cold to the touch. 
Rebecca surmises that he's got about 12 hours before the reanimation process ends and he dissolves into a puddle of mush. Roger decides to take this time to find and exact his vengeance on the person who killed him. They go to Randy's house just shortly before she's attacked by two more undead thugs, which the partners are able to dispatch. Randy says that she's the daughter of a rich industrialist and the owner of the company she works for until his death, Arthur P. Loudermilk. The two of them pay another visit to Rebecca, who says that she might have found a way to keep Roger in healthy condition indefinitely, but the unsure nature of the theory has him decide to spend his final hours finding the man who killed him. He and Randy pay a visit to Laudermilk's tomb, and Randy admits she's not his daughter, but more of a protege or the daughter he never had. While there, they encounter a numeric code, which Roger discovers later is a vital clue. Upon returning to Randy's home, they find Doug dead, having been suspended and drowned in a fish tank for some time. Randy tells Roger that she, that she too, is undead, having been one of Laudermilk's first test subjects for resurrection shortly before abruptly dissolving while asking for Roger's forgiveness. Roger confronts the head coroner, Dr. Ernest McNabb, who was indicated by the secret numeric code that Roger had found, but he turns the tables on Roger, capturing him, then locking him in an ambulance with Rebecca's dead body in order to wait out his last hour to dissolution. He releases the brakes on the ambulance and puts it in neutral, sending it careening down the highway into a massive collision from which he emerges even more zombified and scarred, almost beyond human recognition. He returns to the hospital where McNabb and a resurrected Loudermilk are pitching the resurrection machine to a group of very rich clients. Mortis breaks in, and the ensuing crossfire between him and McNabb's men kill off most of the rich clients, leaving Loudermilk cowering in a corner. McNabb reveals a test subject, Doug, resurrected from the machine, but because he's been dead for hours, the brain deterioration leaves him little more than an obedient zombie with no memory of who Roger is. Before he can obey McNabb's orders to kill Mortis, however, Roger manages to trigger Doug's short-term memory and bring him back to normal. The pair go after McNabb, who immediately kills himself before they can do anything. Roger and Doug put McNabb onto the resurrection table and resurrect him. But Doug starts the resurrection process again, and it overloads, causing a screaming McNabb to explode in the machine. Despite Loudermilk's pleas and promises of eternal life, the pair then destroy the machine completely, leaving the room pondering about the afterlife and reincarnation. Doug's fond wish of being reincarnated as a girl's bicycle seat intrigues both of them. Roger says finally, this could be the end of a beautiful friendship. So, Jim, when was the first time you saw this movie, and what was your first impression? I saw it when it came out in, what was it, 1988? Yeah. And I, I saw it at the theater, and I was uh, 13 years old, which uh, was the exact t- right time to see it. And, you know, it was, it just blew my mind because it reminded me a lot of a film that had come out the year before called The Hidden. Yes. Uh, with Kyle MacLaughlin and... I think um, Michael Norrie. Who's that? Too. Yes. And the actress, Claudia Christian, who was in Babylon 5. Yep. And, you know, it was just, you know, it was fast-paced and extraordinarily violent and funny at the same time and uh schlocky without the schlock didn't didn't ruin the film or make it so that it was simply a schlock fest you know there's a there's a dividing line between watching a movie simply because it's schlocky and watching a movie that happens to be schlocky but is otherwise entertaining in its own right and I remember when it came out, even I think even Fangoria panned it. And now I think it, it's 
it's come back into favor or it's found favor among critics because I think it was it was ahead of its time in some ways. Uh, not not you know completely pioneering, but it reminded me both of the hidden and uh, Return of the Living Dead and uh, Reanimated because it was just absurdly over the top and and funny. In fact, there's a scene where Mortis and Bigelow are in this Chinatown butcher shop, and there is a second reanimation device there, and the purveyor of the shop activates it, and all of these butchered animals that are you know, waiting to be cooked or sold, come at Bigelow and Mortis, including a huge bull that breaks out of its chamber. And it's, it's very much like the scene in Return of the Living Dead, in which the two of the main characters accidentally unleash the 245 trioxin gas into this medical supply warehouse. And all of these animals that are supposed to be dead come alive, including halved dogs and a human cadaver, the yellow man, right. in this freezer. So there are, there are definitely shades of that in, in that scene. Um, so yeah, I, it, it, for me, it was, when I was 13, I, uh, I, I came across a lot of uh, crazy stuff that, you know, sort of fully, sh not fully, but largely shaped my horror outlook. This was the same year I started reading EC Comics. And I just remember loving the, the machine guns, the, the, the craziness, you know, remember the good the good old days when guns killed people. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the sort of the endless, the endless back, not backstabbing, but uh, betrayal when Loudermilk, and I think this was uh, Vincent Price's final film appearance. Uh, he played Loudermilk. When Loudermilk is trying to sell the reanimation to all of these rich, you know, marks, and he, he says, what is it? I wrote it down. It's so fantastic. We're rich. God wants us to live forever. Poor people are supposed to die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which sinks right in with George Romero. You were saying George Romero, I think if you if you look at all of his films and analyze them, it, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that he's writing from a socialist point of view and or a, a left liberal point of view. You know, the rich are bad, society is exploiting people. I mean it's there are lots of ways you can read zombie films from a sort of a critical standpoint, but I think that that Romero puts his cards on the table, especially in the later films like uh, Land of the Dead, where a bunch of rich people are living in this in this fortress in Pittsburgh, and the zombies are trying to get in. And Dennis Hopper plays this megalomaniacal uh, parasite of a guy who fleeces rich people to keep them safe and living in luxury. And, uh, you know, so there's a, there's a hint of that in Arthur Loudermilk saying God's wa God wants us to live forever. And he's got the depredations of the traditional capitalist exploiter because he's actually just selling people their own deaths again. You know, there's no eternal life. Right. They, they, you know, they'll live for a few days and then kaput. So, so it was it was very meaningful for me, and it's also in terms of my development as a horror aficionado, and it has, to me, it's retained its charm. Lo, these thirty three years later, so you know, and and not a lot of films necessarily do that, especially when you see them when you're young, and later on, you know, you're older, and you're like, what was I thinking? 
you know. <laughs> so, so I heard somebody say the same thing about the music they listened to when they were kids. Somebody, some Sirius XM satellite radio host said the same thing of the music he was listening to. Anyway, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I um, I remember when it came out. Um, I was 18. I don't think it played around where we where we um, where we were. Uh, we're north of Boston, but I didn't. At least, I don't know. Growing up, my parents and I always went to the movies, and for some reason, we didn't see it. So I don't know if it didn't play around where we were or not. But I, it only ran for like a week or so. I think it was like uh, March, like sixth to the sixteenth or something. Uh, so maybe that's like two weeks. But I do remember being a big deal because Joe Piscopo, who had you know left SNL a couple of years prior to that, he had gotten into amazing shape and he was doing those Miller Lite commercials. And you know, I remember reading about it in Fangoria that you mentioned. It was on on the cover. In fact, I I looked it up just before doing the show here. And yeah, I re- I, I may still have that somewhere. But it's got the picture of that monster with the like the three noses. Yeah. Yeah, know, multiple yeah. Face on the cover, and um, yeah, it's like Easy Rider from Hell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, my dad and I were real excited, looking forward to seeing it. We rented it as soon as it came out on VHS, and you know, at the time, like I said, I was eighteen or maybe nineteen by the time it came out on VHS, and I really enjoyed it, and I watched it quite a bit, a bit back then. But um, a few months ago, I decided to revisit it, and then I watched it again yesterday, and I have to say, well, it it retained its charm for you, for me. Personally, I think it lost some of its charm, and you know we'll go into that in detail in a little bit. I'd like to dive into the cast and uh, the director first. It's directed by Mark Goldblatt, who was a big-time editor. He also directed The Punisher from 89 with Dolph Lundgren and Louis Gossett Jr., but he edited a ton of films, including Humanoids from the Deep, The Howling, Halloween 2, Terminator 1 and 2, Commando, Predators, wow. Starship Troopers, X-Men The Last Stand, and he also did the remakes he edited the remakes for The Wolfman and Death Wish. So he's got wow. a, yeah, he's got a huge list under his belt. And I think I said during our last conversation, Halloween two wait, which Halloween two are we talking about? The one from eighty one or yes. the one from two thousand nine? Eighty one. So yeah, that's one of my, my favorite movies of all time. Halloween two. Yeah. So I think two thousand nine that was H two O. And the new Death Wish now that was nineteen ninety eight. Oh, okay. um, that was the 20th anniversary of the 1978 Halloween. Oh, right. You're talking about the Robin Zombie so, film. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, he did the original Halloween. So, yeah, no, really talented guy. Yeah. So, but yeah. go on. Uh, well, then we've got the writer. There's an interesting conundrum here because, according to Wikipedia, of course, you know, encyclopedia by general consensus, they said that the Los Angeles Times mentioned Darren Starr as a writer on the film. But only t- uh, along with Terry Black, but only Terry Black's name is in IMDb credits. Um, he he wrote a bunch of TV series, nothing that stands out to me. But he also did a video game called Real Red Steel and Red Steel Two. And then we've got our cast here. We've got Treat Williams as Roger Mortis, who you know obviously the name Roger Mortis is a joke on the term rigor mortis, which is you know when a dead body turns stiff. Right. But you know he's a film star who. Uh, he got put on the map with Hair. He did the movie Hair in 79. He's been in 1941, Prince of the City, Flashpoint, Mulholland Falls. Um, he did a Fred Olin Ray film in 2001 called Venomous, which I actually saw recently, too, and that was really enjoyable. And um, he, I saw that, too. Yeah. yeah. You know, I the think thing it was, was, was it made for TV, I think, or it felt like that? It may. I think it was direct-to-video. I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, it may have been made for, like, Sci-Fi Channel or something, but... Um, yeah. You know what I th- what I think about 
for his performance here in this movie, as well as pretty much anything else, including Venomous, he gives 100% no matter what he does. And I thought he totally gave 100% to the, the role of Roger Mortis in this. Yeah, I what I like is that he, he really comes across as this. It's just like DOA from 1949, yes. which uh, directly inspired this film. In fact, there's a scene uh, from DOA, I think, in it's it's playing in Randy James' apartment when they discover that Doug Bigelow has been murdered and he's suspended in the fish tank. That's right. Um, and you know, so so I watched DOA just to uh, just to acquaint myself with the inspiration, the original, not the Dennis Quaid remake, which right. I saw in 1987 whenever it came out but didn't haven't seen since and what i like what i like about it is you have this regular guy just like roger mortis who is unremarkable you know he's not ugly he's not terribly handsome um he's just a, a regular guy and suddenly he's thrust into this terrible circumstance and you know his his choice is either to own it or to to you know, lament his final hours. It's sort of the uh, there was a great episode of The Simpsons years ago, in which Homer. It's another homage to DOA, I believe. Homer is told he only has 24 hours to live for some reason. I don't know, like he ingests a poison or something exposed. He's exposed to something at work. I don't remember. But so Homer, you have a day left to do whatever you want. What are you gonna do? And he's like crying. I've only got 24 hours to live. You know, and there's this, he finally falls asleep at night listening to the Bible recited by, I think it was James Earl Jones, you know, and wakes up the next morning. He's like, oh, I'm not dead. But yeah, there's this. So like you said, he gets progressively more decayed and damaged throughout the film until eventually he, he just he's sort of reborn, ironically, into this. I don't give a fuck, you know, kill them all machine. Right. You know, you've given me death, so I'm going to deal it back. And watching his transformation is terrific. And you're right, Treat Williams really brings it, and he nails this role. Oh yeah. Um, you know, and the, that's one of the other things that the, the the writing is really crisp and and witty, and you know, it's uh, Joe Piscopo. I imagine probably made up a lot of his lines, so. Um, you know, because he's a comedian, and I wouldn't be surprised if he just ad hoced or improvised a lot of his stuff right on the set, and they, they said, uh, oh, yeah, definitely go with this. You know, so. I think that's possible. You know, Joe Piscopo, like I said, he was the reason I watched this film, and, um, you know, I just felt on the recent rewatches that I have, I've done, it, I felt that a lot of his jokes fell flat, probably because they were improvised rather than sort of hashed out ahead of time. Because there's even a couple of moments where Treat Williams kind of gives him this look like he's just annoyed by him. And I almost wondered if that was real or if that was acting, you know? <laughs> well, let's say it was a happy coincidence. Yeah. You know, because his character is intended to be annoying, right? Yeah. yeah. So, and he, he makes all of these, you know, he makes all of these inappropriate comments and jokes. And, you know, he's, he's sort of the chaotic compliment to the to the button-down stayed Roger Mortis. Right. So. Now, there's one scene that Piscopo does. Now, first of all, for those who don't know, listening at home, uh, Joe Piscopo was, uh, he gained fame from being on Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live 
from 1980 to 84, along with Eddie Murphy, and the two of them were huge stars at the time. They did a few things together. I don't know if they did a movie together, but they did quite a few comedy things together. Um, I, I, first of all, I think his best movie was, uh, Piscopo's best movie was Johnny Dangerously. I thought he was really good in that. Yes, I love that movie. But in this film, there's the one scene when, when Roger dies, and Piscopo, in his grief, he sells it. Like, I totally, him being serious... And talking about yeah. you know what happened, I totally believed it. I thought he really, really sold it. Yeah, in the, in the supposedly humane execution chamber. Yes, yeah. <laughs> to me, that's actually the creepiest part of the movie. That chamber, you know. But, but I get the feeling. Oh yeah. Oh definitely. Yeah. Especially um, you know, especially when the humans get caught in that. But I yeah. I kind of felt that Piscopo. You know, now, like I said, he, he walked out of Saturday Night Live, so he was a pretty big star at the time. Then he got himself into super shape and was doing those commercials where he's showing off his muscles. And even in this movie, he was, you know, oftentimes there were scenes where he's got a, you know, cut-off sleeve shirt and he's flexing his muscles. I almost felt like, as an actor, he was becoming really full of himself and the fame and getting in shape, that was all kind of going to his head. Did, did you get that out of this? No, I, I, well, if it was, I think that it's cloaked in the fact that the character he's playing has already, his, his personality has already gotten full of himself. So, you know, what's the first thing you see when they're, when they're introduced driving that, what is it? It's like a 1958 Ford or something convertible. Yeah. And they're listening to this music and he's slapping on the dashboard, you know, listening. So, you know what his character reminds me of a little bit is the Doc character from Scrubs, the you know complete male bimbo who happens to be the best surgeon in the hospital. <laughs> and he's got the Doc tattoo on his arm, and he's the complete you know he 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 is a tomcatting uh, sex maniac. He just wants to sleep with basically everybody, and. You know, it, it reminds me, it's a, it's a chaotic figure that is plugged straight into the lizard brain and the libido, right? Right. And the ego and super ego are just there for comic relief. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I, I really liked, I liked, you're right, a movie in which his character alone is in charge is difficult to swallow unless he has a supporting role or, or a, a character who he works in tandem with. It's like the all the great comedy duos, who is the yin to his yang. And what I'm reminded of is another of my favorite films, Beverly Hills Cop, and Eddie Murphy is the star of that, and he plays the same kind of character. And he has these button-down, you know, Beverly Hills Cops as his comedic foils. Right. So that he can be a disruptive, so he's a disruptive influence, and he has something to disrupt. Yeah. Right. So you might be right. I'm just not sure. But, you know, his the character is so full of himself that, you know, it's even if it was Joe Piscopo being full of himself, you, you can't necessarily tell that. Because, right. <laughs> you know, that's the character he's playing. And I wouldn't be surprised. A lot of actors, I think, sort of in order to get into the heads of their characters, will try to absorb the characteristics of those of those people that they're playing. And. You know, I, I guess the greatest compliment I ever heard paid an actor was um, maybe it was Ray Manzarek. One of the 
surviving members were then surviving members of the Doors, the rock band from the 60s. They were on the set of the Oliver Stone movie that came out in 1991 about the Doors, and Val Kilmer played Jim Morrison. Yeah. And he did it so well that one of the Doors said, you know, it was almost like having Jim around for a while. <laughs> That's you know? awesome. Yeah. And, you know, so really great actors will just become absorbed into the character they're playing. I think that people said that of Heath Ledger, too. His final role was that of the Joker. And, yeah. and I mean, he just owned it. I mean, he did it in a way. I mean, Jack Nicholson did a good job when he played the Joker. And the latest Joker, also excellent. Uh, um, Joaquin Phoenix. But there was something about something about Heath Ledger. He just disappeared into that role, you know. Oh, a truly yeah. great actor, even one, you know, you can see the, some great actors, they're, they're so, you can see them so clearly for who they are as celebrities. So it's difficult to accept them as their characters after a while. And that wasn't a problem for Heath Ledger. Right. You know? Well, especially, and I mean, not so much nowadays, the, but back in the day, uh, a lot of actors got typecast. And they had a hard time getting yes. other roles, like George Reeves, who played Superman on the TV series. Yes, correct. In fact, they still are typecast in many ways. Some people just, they're never going to get around. Like, who is the actor, the bald-headed actor from The Hills Have Eyes? Oh, uh, Michael Berryman. Yeah. It's very difficult to cast him outside of being what he is, and a unique-looking individual who lends himself to the bad guy in a horror film. Right. Or Clint Howard, you know, who's a brilliant horror actor. But it's difficult to see Clint Howard outside of a cult movie following because he's so unique. Um, and actually, I think that unique is better than blandly handsome or attractive because it's more memorable. Right. And it lends itself to more convincing characters. Right. Um, that's why I think you'll find that many... Uh, Many of the biggest stars, even if they're even if they're beautiful or handsome, there's something, there's an X factor there that separates them from other beautiful and handsome people, right? Yeah. So, you know, there's something it, that's why it's called an X factor. You, you just don't know. Um, you can't account for it. It's sui generis. So there it is. Yeah. And you know, that's Joe Piscopo has that, you know, and and he. I think it contributes to the character of of Bigelow. In fact, just as an aside, uh, Bigelow, Fra Doug Bigelow is named after Frank Bigelow, the character in DOA, the main the main character. Oh right, so, and uh, Edmund O'Brien played him. But yeah, okay, I love that movie. In by fact, the way. it's at some point if you want to, yeah. Well, there are all kinds of you know clever clever tips of the hat to the original one, including. The bar in which Bigelow is poisoned in DOA is the Fisherman Bar. And you'll notice that there's an ongoing dead fish motif in Dead, dead, in dead Heat. When you meet the coroner, uh, Roger Mortis's sometime girlfriend, she has, she has fish in glass, right? They're dead. Oh, yeah. And she says it's easier to have them so they don't die on you. And then what happens to Bigelow? He's drowned in a fish tank, right? Right. And Randy James even laments when, when her apartment is shot up that, you know, 
a fish tank she has there is, is shattered and the fish die. And her favorites, she says, they always die. Right. So there's a fish motif running throughout. And the other thing that's interesting is that the poison administered to Frank Bigelow and DOA is glowing. It's a, it's a, it's a radioactive poison. And when Roger Mortis accidentally slashes his arm open um, and when he's, when he's slightly after he's been reanimated, when he's still at the, at the, what is it called? Afterlife Industries, or I can't remember what the name of the business is. I forgot. Anyway, (laughs) it it shows that he's glowing inside, right? Yeah. You know, there's a, there's like light emanating from it. So I, I think that that is also a, that is also a little tip of the hat. And the biggest tip of the hat, besides the the scene with the, the scene with the scene in it, terribly meta, the DOA homage having a scene of DOA in it yeah. is the running through the library, running down the street. You know, Roger Mortis runs through the library in a panic, and Frank Bigelow runs down the street in a panic. You know. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it's what I what I really like. I I actually think that. Um, Dead Heat is an improvement on DOA, which is a more uneven film. I mean, DOA is a good film and it's clever, but it's sort of just, it, it, it goes all over the place in a way that's less organic than Dead Heat. At the beginning, you know who's killed Roger Mortis, really. And, you know, you know that it has something to do with this place. And so, you, you know, it's a mystery, but, you know, it, it all emanates from that one place. It's not like somebody just takes him out in a random place like the bar and he has to circle back constantly and figure out what's going on. That's true. So, though the the character, the secretary character in DOA, who is, you know, his, who is his on-again, off-again sort of girlfriend, just like the coroner is Roger Mortis' on-again, off-again girlfriend, you know, provides a, a really interesting perspective in the film that doesn't you know it's it it doesn't come across as well when they when they translate it to dead heat you know the character of the coroner is interesting but not as instrumental or important in the doa the original doa right so you know ultimately too i you know i'm just more disposed to a horror treatment as opposed to a thriller treatment well yeah (laughs) so so let's continue on with our cast here. We've got Lindsay Frost, who played Randy James. Um, she was only in a handful of things. She was in The Ring and um, one episode of Lost, but those are the only ones that kind of stood out to me. And, of course, we've got uh, Darren McGavin as Dr. Ernest yes. McNabb. Of course, everyone knows him as Kolchak the Night Stalker. Yeah. Body Doc. Oh, yeah. And if you don't know him as that, he was. you may know him as the father from the movie A Christmas Story. Um, you know, the guy's That's got right. a list of over 180 credits, and he's another one that was pretty good. And I mean, not pretty good. He's another one that was great in everything he does, and he was really good here, too. I think he really sold his part as well. Oh, yeah. He was a sleazebag, very smooth, and, you know, he's wearing a Rolex and drives this expensive BMW, and, you know, I guess there's a who, somebody makes a comment, I guess, that, that undertaking is. Uh, or or body, you know, death has done him done well by him, something like that. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> he, he's one of these guys we should do a whole show on because you know, yeah, he's so good. Are you a lifelong fan of General Hospital? 
Are you a new fan who wants to know more about the history of the show? Do you enjoy talking about the show with others? Do you find yourself yelling at the TV? Is your self-care an hour a day in Port Charles? If so, we invite you to join hosts Amanda Kimmel and Shannon Coach at the place where all the hidden conversations take place and secrets are revealed. Meet us at Pier 54, a General Hospital fan podcast. We come from the retro future. We want you to be nostalgic for what's to come. A new channel and distribution network for smart people with bad taste featuring content from Church of the Subgenius, Creature Features, Cinema, Insomnia, Sleazy P. Martini and Guar, Troma, Corey Maccabee, Horror, Sci-Fi, Saturday Morning Cartoons, Midnight Movies, and Assorted Trash We Love. Add our channel, OSI 74, to your Roku player or visit OSI74.com. All systems go. Hey, cats and kittens, do you remember the 50s jukeboxes, hot rods, malt shops, and sock hops? No, not really. Oh, well, do you remember that TV show Happy Days? You know, Fonzie and Richie and all like that? A, sit on it, etc.? Kind of. Then join us for These Days Are Ours, a Happy Days podcast where we watch every episode and give you the lowdown on what it all means. Find us at thesedaysareours.libsyn.com and follow us on Twitter at Fonzie Podcast. Be there or be square. You're sure you don't remember sock hops? Sorry, no. Okay, then. And of course, the great horror star Vincent Price. This what else can we say about him that hasn't already been said? I mean, you know, we had William Goldstein on the show uh, previously who wrote The Abominable Dr. Fibes, which I yes. believe is perhaps one of Price's best film roles. And it's kind of funny, though. I, I got the impression that even though he also was sort of giving 100%, he didn't seem like he really wanted to be in this movie. Maybe the part was too small or, you know, I felt like he was kind of – underused he, they could have done a little bit more with vincent price in this movie yeah i i agree i always want to see more vincent price so yeah. um but at the same time he was i think he was like almost 90 or something so maybe he just didn't have that much energy i'm not sure right i so, think this this wasn't his last role because after this he was uh he had that small part in um i almost said beetlejuice in uh, edward scissorhands Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, he's at the very he's the one who creates Edward Scissorhands at the very beginning. Okay. Okay. Um and then um, continuing on with Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, so continuing on, we've got Clara Kirkconnell who played Rebecca Smithers, Dr. Rebecca Smithers. She only had 14 credits including the A-team, an episode of the A-team, an episode of TJ Hooker. Um then we've of course have T Luke who played Mr. Thule. And um, he's great. You know, to me, he was always the voice of Zoltar in Battle of the Planets, but because his voice is so distinct. But uh, I think the most people in this audience will remember him from is playing Grandfather in Gremlins. But he's been in over 227 things. And another thing I actually didn't realize who he was growing up, um, he played Lee Chan, one of Charlie Chan's sons in the 1940s Charlie Chan movies. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he's another one that we have to do a whole show on because he's got so many different movies and TV shows that he's been in. Oh, yeah. I I, I didn't know he played Zoltar in uh, Battle of the Planets. And as an aside, uh, Battle of the Planets is actually a sort of anglicized version of the Japanese series called, what was it, Gachaman? Science Ninja Team Gachaman, Uh, yeah. Yes. And... I don't know if he had a role in that or not, 
Uh, oh, only I, in the American yeah, I, bastardization of it. Okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, in the original, so. there were no planets. There was no outer space. They were fighting a terrorist organization called Spectra. Spectra. And they weren't from outer space. I think there was one episode where something happened with astronauts on the moon. And they used that yeah. footage over and over like for the intro and stuff. And I think part of it, not to get too far on a tangent, but with Battle of the Planets, yeah. they had to cut so much violence out of that that they had yeah. to add stuff yeah. in. And so that's why they, they changed the premise yeah. up completely. Yeah, I it reminds me of the outrage that ensued when WWOR in New York was showing Robotech in the mid-'80s and all of these uh, outraged, I think, you know, soccer moms were like, how can you show people dying in a war show to our children? You know? <laughs> that's funny. I hadn't heard that that, that happened. Yeah, yeah, it was insane, you know. Because I that's loved why it. G.I. Joe. Oh, I loved it too. It was awesome. But I loved it because of that, because it was very realistic with how, you know, with the yeah. characters living and dying and all that. Yeah. No, that's why in G.I. Joe you'll notice that none of the characters ever dies. And right. whenever whenever a plane gets taken out, the people parachute to safety. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a total fantasy. So yeah. in the movies now, they you know, they do die. And but I think that they were thinking back then. I, I'd like to think that you know the cynic in me, you know the 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 argument would be well to show for kids we don't want to traumatize them. The cynic in me thinks, and I thought this when remember the Transformers movie in 1986. Of course, yeah. And Megatron storms this. It's I think it's it feels like an homage to the opening of Star Wars: A New Hope. Uh, storms this ship carrying a bunch of Autobots and just wastes a bunch of them. Yeah. Including jazz. It was like, I guess I can't play with jazz anymore, right? <laughs> and and all I can think is like, you know, these people, these decision makers who own the rights to the G.I. Joe characters were like, do you think kids won't play with the characters anymore if we kill them off on screen? You know? <laughs> and then they might not buy other toys because, oh no, they might get killed off, right? right. Somehow they'll be less appealing or valuable or whatever so well that's just you know that's neither here nor there but yeah the other cast member i really was going to bring up who i love is professor toro tanaka yes he's the um go ahead go ahead no 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 you go ahead well he he played odd job in goldfinger and he's this massive guy um who plays a heavy you know, he's massive. I think he's like probably well over six feet and 350 pounds. And, you know, there's this, that wonderful scene where either Mortis or Bigelow puts his, you know, LAPD shield down and it's leather holder in front of this guy who's chopping meat in this Chinatown butcher shop. And so he cleaves it in half. Right. right? <laughs> and it's it's like the scene in Goldfinger, not just the hat, you know, he had the razor hat that would decapitate people, but there's a scene where he uh, <laughs> he grabs the golf ball from Sean Connery and just crushes it, right. you know, in his bare hand. Um, you know, what's also interesting is there's a Shadow episode from 1941, you know, the Shadow, Lamont Cranston. Yes. Um, and I'm trying, I think it might be called Murder by the Dead. I, I, the the title escapes me, but it's it's very much in keeping with the plot of Dead Heat, in that what happens is 
this gangster is grievously mortally wounded. They bring him into a hospital and this doctor is working on this formula that reanimates the dead and he reanimates this gangster and the gangster in turn murders him because he's a psychopath. And then he steals the formula and he reanimates an army of dead gangsters. He steals them from the morgue and then uses them to commit crimes back. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, Robert Picardo has a small part in this as Lieutenant Herzog. Exactly. Um, yes. I always love him. The you guy, know, from his bit parts yeah, in The Howling. The Doctor. And... Is what? Also in Star Trek, right? Isn't that his biggest role? He was Trek? the holographic, emergency yeah. holographic doctor in Star Trek Voyager, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is great because there's a scene in the movie, I think it was Star Trek Generations, when the Enterprise is going down. I think they, they separate the saucer from the ship and the ship blows up. And the saucer is crashing on the planet, and he appears as the emergency holographic doctor for like all of ten seconds. <laughs> well, there's also the scene in um, First Contact, in which the 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 Borg have taken over most of Enterprise, and so they're fleeing the medical, you know, the medical bay. And Doctor Crusher says to him, "There are a bunch of Borg about to come in here." Well, what do you want me to do? It's like, we'll distract them. And so they show him like talking to these Borg saying, Borg implants can cause skin irritation. Would you <laughs> like an analgesic cream for that? You know. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, you know, he had some great cameos, like um well, he didn't have a cameo in the howling. He was a character, he was um I forget which character he was. Eddie. He was Eddie in the Howling. But he did have a cameo like in the Burbs and he was in Gremlins 2, Inner Space. You know, I just love this guy. He just everything he's in, he's hilarious. Except yeah. for the howling. He was he, started, he reminds me a little bit of, of Dick Sean, um, the character actor. He was in The Princess Bride. He was in he played the uh the frumpy teacher in Clueless, who's in oh, love okay. with the English teacher. Yeah, yeah. 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 He's another great actor. Yeah. So and sort then, of a character actor. Um, one thing I wanted to mention previously, I, I love that uh, Toru Tanaka's first name is Professor. <laughs> That's great. Yes. <laughs> you know, he was on an episode of Bring Him Back Alive with Bruce Boxleitner, who we had on the show previously. And um, then we, of course, the, the last person I wanted to mention was the newscasters played by Martha Quinn. And actually, she's not the last person I want to mention, but she, uh, Martha Quinn, who was one of the original MTV VJs, if anyone remembers when MTV started. 1981, was it? Yeah, which I never liked MTV anyways. I still don't. <laughs> no, it was 1980, I think. Somewhere around The 40th there. anniversary just, just occurred. And then, of um, course... Oh, go ahead. I liked MTV when they actually played music. So they had, And they had these shows like Headbangers Ball and uh, 120 Minutes where they'd play alternative videos. So... Some of it was pretty, some of it was good. Yeah. I remember when Thriller first came on. That was a big deal. Yeah. The Dead Kennedys have this great song on their, I think it's the Frankenchrist album, MTV Get Off the Air, <laughs> uh, ridiculing MTV for purveying what they regard as commercial garbage under the, the guise of being edgy. It's a lot of fun to listen to. Right, right. And he refers to the VJs as, um, what is it? People wearing baseball jackets and wig and whacked out or wigged out on quaaludes. So, <laughs> yeah, I re I like parts of MTV. So. Yeah, 
But you're right. It was a, a little much after a while. It just felt like a huge infomercial for trendy whatever. Oh, yeah. And know, then they started getting Whatever they were the, trying to sell the kids. Right. And then the reality shows, and it was just like, I hate reality shows anyway. So. Um, but anyways, uh, the last person I wanted to mention, uh, give honorable mention to, was uh, Shane Black had a small part as a patrolman. And, of course, he wrote Lethal Weapon and the Monster yes. Squad, Iron Man 3. As well as directing Iron Man three, uh, the remake of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and also The Predator, and he played Hawkins in the original Predator, where he had m- much more of a substantial role than he did here. But I felt like I had to mention him because this movie is a mashup of a lot of things, including Lethal Weapon, DOA, you know, Reanimator. It's a gore film. It's got slapstick comedy in it. Um, it's it, it's just so much. It's a pastiche of. Yeah. It's a pastiche of all the, the cool stuff nerds like me love, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of I I I I I guess that I don't want to admit this, but I'm going to anyway, that I, I feel like I persist in a perpetual adolescence. Yeah. And <laughs> fil- films like this are, are like my you know, my kryptonite. It's like, oh okay, yeah, absolutely. Zombies with machine guns. <laughs> you know, sign me up. Right? Oh yeah. This movie had a lot of foreign titles, but most of them translate to Dead Heat. Uh, but in Japan, it was known as Zombie Cops. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a great movie in that basically every principal member of the cast ends up dead and reanimated. Yeah, yeah. Except for the, the coroner. Right. Um, I mean, uh, Rebecca, what's her name? Uh, Claire Kirkconnell's character. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they all end up reanimated. It's a, it's a very interesting. You can you can have a lot of fun metaphorically with that concept. Right, right. So, and apparently there's an extended version which I have not seen. Um, and a lot of what's extended are are flashbacks, um, unnecessary plot scenes with dialogue. Um, apparently there's a few additional shots of zombies and corpses to be found, but. I guess they weren't cut for any kind of censorship reasons or, you know, to give it a rated R rating. So um, I'm not sure. I, I believe there's a fan version out there somewhere that has these ones added in. And there's a website, which, of course, I didn't write it down, so I don't recall what it is. But beyond that, I've only seen the, the one version that you and I have seen, unless you've seen. But it's not like a version that was cut to get an R rating or something. Right. right? Which there is gore yeah. in it, but there's I didn't think there's that much gore. I mean there's yeah. far less gore than you see on regular TV nowadays, so <laughs> No, that's correct. Uh, except the exploding um exploding body dog. That's true, that's true. Jared <laughs> McGavin. Now, obviously you saw it in the so. theaters, so you didn't have this issue, but when it came out for me, I thought it was a, the title uh, Dead Heat was a spoof of Arnold Schwarzenegger's film Red Heat. Because Red Heat came out a month after this. So I'm certainly that that was, you know, I'm I'm fairly certain that that was a coincidence. Because I, I don't know, but I know that there's a noir film called Dead Heat. Oh, okay, um, yeah, from the '40s or '50s, I think. Um, I have a feeling Dead Heat doesn't really, it it doesn't really say much about the nature of the movie, right? And you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it had a different title, and some marketing person said, yeah. The, the title, you know, pigeonholes it as a niche film. So let's have something 
you know, blander and more widely appealing. Yeah, so that we generic. Rope, rope people in who might not otherwise watch a niche film. Right, right. I so saw one, one funny... Not um, to forgive my cynicism. <laughs> no, it makes sense, but I saw one funny uh, review online that said, instead of good cop, bad cop, the good cop, I'm sorry, instead of the good cop, bad cop paradigm, it's good cop, dead cop. <laughs> yeah. And then dead cop, dead cop. Right. So. And the effects were done by uh, industry vet Steve Johnson, who created Slimer in Ghostbusters, which would explain why the effects are really good throughout the whole film. Yeah. Fangoria, as I recall, said that the special effects were great, but they didn't like the, the story. Yeah. So the, the fat, the fat uh, biker dude with the three noses, is, I, I should use that. I should make that my um, my profile pic on my on my Facebook page. <laughs> there you, you go. Know? Or like, or do it on LinkedIn. You know, LinkedIn. All these people have these like <laughs> fantastically professional headshots. Like everybody's angling to like right. bolster their resume. You know, but here's the three day zombie biker dude from Dead Heat. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. But yeah, that butcher shop scene was great, you know, in terms of effects and stuff. And, you know, of course, the liver that attaches itself to Roger's face. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. man. No, it's like, the, it's like the half dog in uh, Return of the Living Dead. And they keep trying to kill it, and it keeps yelping. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. I mean most of the action sequences too were, were pretty much shoot 'em ups. I'm sorry, shootouts, but I, I thought they were very well done. You well, know? I agree. I, I think that I think that um you know, it, it they were they were serviceable action movie sequences. So you know, it's not like something from John Woo, but I think it may work within the context of the movie because it, you know, if you emphasize, it, it holds together organically because it takes a bunch of disparate parts and gives each a an organically suitable role. And if you if you emphasized one over the others, it would be out of balance. So, for example, if you did action sequences like John Woo does them, suddenly the horror stuff would seem out of place. That's and true. And if you yeah. did the horror stuff, you know, the way uh, a Goremeister would do it, the action sequences would seem out of place. Right. So, I mean, it's definitely got that 80s low-budget vibe. I kind of felt it had a, like a Charles Band feel to it. Did you get that at all? Well, it was definitely not a high-budget film. And it's definitely not a film that would be released in the theaters nowadays. Yeah. But I, I'm guessing that I'm guessing I, I don't know this, but it didn't. It felt it was low budget, but it didn't feel low budget to me because the creature effects were really cool. Um, that's probably where the majority of the budget went. Right. And the other thing that that I'm thinking is that you know it's one of these low budget comparatively low budget films that gets a, a widespread release uh, or mainstream release because I wouldn't be surprised if they chose to do that because the hidden, it, I think it had done really well. Yeah. Um, and the hidden was a low budget film, but it, it's one of the greatest sci-fi action masterpieces in American, in, in history, in my opinion, it's just, it's just completely 
ridiculously over the top and somehow believable at the same time. Yeah. And the fact that there aren't really any major stars in it just makes it more compelling. So I yeah, think I, I, I think uh, I knew who Kyle McLaughlin was from uh Blue Velvet in The Hidden because I really enjoyed The Hidden yeah, when I seen that was pre Twin Peaks. Right. And he was also in Dune, wasn't he? Dune, that's right. Yep. That's yeah. right. And Michael Laurie had been in Flashdance. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. And I think it I think it was Claudia Christian's debut role. It may have been. And yeah. it was just she just knocked it out of the park. It was oh, fantastic. Yeah. The, the homicidal stripper with the bag full of military grade firearms. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a nerd fantasy, right? Right. <laughs> Now, one thing I did want to bring up, since we were talking about films that sort of came after Night of the Living Dead and were, you know, Romero set up the rules, the zombie rules. Now, while you had mentioned previously there was a lot of social commentary that mirrored what Romero tried to do, um, the zombies in this movie don't necessarily follow those rules because they can be killed by electrocution. I think in one instance, one guy stabbed by an umbrella. Uh, you know, the pole from an umbrella. So they were. that's one thing with it I thought they were a little inconsistent with was how to dispatch the zombies. Well, I guess I'm wondering about the rules because even Romero, Romero never spelled out his rules. They had to be inferred from his films. Right. But even he started giving the zombies personalities over time and that the apogee of that i think was land of the dead yes in which these zombies sort of form a union and demand zombie rights right yeah and <laughs> that that was you know that that became even more pronounced in things like i zombie right um so i you know i'm not sure that there are rules necessarily and i i'm not sure that i would trace dead heat within the Romero tradition, per se. Right. Uh, um, I would say, say it's more like, uh, you know, it's it's more like a vampire tradition, you know, because vampires are zombies. And vampires are fully, you know, they're fully, they retain all of their intellectual faculties. So you're right. If Let's put it this way. If you're going to set out rules and you're clearly going to follow tradition, you should follow the rules. But, and if you're going to break them, it should be explained in a convincing and organic way within the story. That said, you know, since there's no like sort of scientific basis for knowing what a zombie would do, assuming a zombie could be made. You know, I, I think it's up for grabs. I mean, who started the running zombie phenomenon? Was that the remake of Was that the remake of uh, Dawn of the Dead? Um, no, I think it was, was Twenty Eight Days. Snyder? Was Twenty Eight Days Later or something? That's that right. Prior to that's that, that's right. Yeah, Twenty Eight Days Later. Yeah. Um, where it's more like a rage virus. Right. Right. Um, so that's arguably within the Romero tradition too. But you know, these these people are dead, but they're animated by this hideously energizing contagion right and when i say the romero rules i'm talking about um you know the they uh the zombie bite makes more zombies uh they can only be killed by a headshot those sorts of yeah. things and right. and what we're seeing in these films is what i 
had brought it. Well, actually, we discussed on my other show, The East Meets the West with the Spaghetti Westerns, is after a certain point of these films coming out, the Spaghetti Westerns, they was, uh, the directors and writers were starting to deconstruct the genre, which basically meant they were trying to do something that hadn't been done before. And I think this movie exemplifies that because because they, they're only zombies because the machines brought them back to life. They, you know, there's different ways they can be killed. They're, they don't spread it like a virus or a plague or anything like that. So that was what right. I was getting at is that it's this, I think this may even be one of the first examples of sort of trying to take the zombie, the zombie motif in the way Romero did it and bringing it in a different direction. Well, it's like, you know, in some ways, it's like the original zombie Frankenstein, right? Frankenstein is a product of medical science, and he's revived from dead tissue by electricity. But he's not a zombie that eats people. He's not a zombie that bites people and creates other zombies. Right. So I would say that if if Dead Heat is borrowing from a tradition, and it you know it can't help but borrow from a tradition if the person writing it or making the film has seen or you know digested all of these other films and books, which I'm sure they, they did, it's more in a, it, it's more in a, you know, science gone wrong, not space dust or, you know, or marijuana killing spray <laughs> kind of thing. I don't know if it's an evil intent, but it's, it's science that is really playing with fire and, you know, it brings these people back to life and they're just grotesque facsimiles of what they were right I, I think the only evil so, yeah, intent I, was stealing the money and the jewels and all that but but just simply yeah. extending people's lives there's no evil intent there i don't know i guess it depends on you know and i i think that you're right about that but at the point i think that the the one of the things you can infer from mortis and bigelow destroying the reanimation machine is that they've decided that the even if you reanimate people with purely anodyne or good intentions, you know, it's it's worse than actually being dead. It reminds me of that. It reminds me of the what is it? The penultimate scene or final scene in Bride of Frankenstein. Frankenstein's monster says to the bride, "He says, we belong dead." Right. Right. Um, because you're right. I mean, you could reanimate people, but what's to stop them from just disintegrating 12 or 24 hours later? Right. Um, there was this great, a, a similar, a similar plot device I saw in an old judge read about this this service in Mega City One that was on the brink of death, and then put them in suspended animation. And then when the visitor, when the relatives wanted to come visit, they would sort of defrost them. And then they would spend five <laughs> minutes with their relative and then in back into the cooler they went, you know. <laughs> and it's like, or, or the, the mythical, uh, I think she was a prophetess, Sybil. There was this ancient Greek prophetess in, in mythology and she was cursed with immortality. And there's a scene in, I think this guy is Petronius, the uh, Trimalchio's, I don't know if it's Trimalchio's dinner party or it's the, yeah, the Cana Trimalchionis. It's an old Latin literature. It's a novel we have fragments of. And Sybil is owned by somebody and she's a wisp of a thing in a glass jar at this point. And 
somebody asks her what she wants and she says, I wish to die. Right. Um, so there, there's a sense in which, and if you look at Arthur Loudermill, you know, he's sort of, he's alive, but how alive is he? Because the vessel, the physical vessel in which, his, in which he functions is utterly decrepit. Oh, yeah. Right? And so to the extent that people associate life with corporeality or incarnation, you know, it, it, it's kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a really rough trade, you know, trade-off. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, if you could be, you know, if you could be in, I don't know, pick your, pick your famous athlete in the prime, like LeBron James. If you could be in LeBron James's body and be reanimated, who wouldn't want that, right? Right. Um, or a supermodel or, you know, pick, pick someone who has a magnificent uh, physical, has magnificent physical abilities and form and health, you know, but if you, if it means just coming back in the same old body, let's say you're wrecked with terrible cancer, right? You know, if they bring you back, are you just going to be wrecked with terrible cancer again? You know? Well, that's what I was going to so, say. You know, Vincent Price is showing this to all these old people. Well, what I'm saying is this, um, destroying the machine leaves open, destroying the machine leaves open the inference that it's better to be dead than some grotesque facsimile of life. Well, that's what I was going to say. These old people, um, if they go into the machine, like say they die of old age, you go in the machine, does the machine heal you or do you just come back like you were 24 hours ago and you have to die all over again, you know? I don't know, and that's an inconsistency in the plot because Randy James has been reanimated and she's been existing for apparently quite a while. Right. I was and then she suddenly that. melts down and it's, you know, there's no sort of forewarning. And I think that forewarning would make it less scary, but at the same time, the internal logic of reanimation is thrown up in the air because Mortis gets 12 hours, Randy James gets, well, long enough to work at, you know, Right. Her benefactor's business doing public relations. Right. And you know, who knows yeah, how long Vincent Price has been around. Exactly. Exactly. Now I have a question for you. So in the Chinese butcher shop scene, maybe I missed a line or something, but why did the butcher shop have the same electricity as the reanimation machine, thereby causing all the, the you know, poultry and pigs and everything to come back to life? I think that's another plot point that's never explained right and i suppose the happy news is that if you want to get reanimated you can go back to this butcher shop unless they destroyed it i can't remember did they destroy it in the butcher shop too or not uh, um no they just fought the know. monsters and then i think that was it so i suppose there's an implication that there is a mystical component to to the uh, reanimation process and, and that's what this uh Chinese butcher represents there's you know he's not dressed in conventional pedestrian clothes he's he's dressed in very formal clothes right and you know the the impression you're supposed to get is that he is a healer or a shaman or a holy man possibly and he's involved in and so, with Vincent Price and the yeah. whole you know cadre of guys exactly and so I guess the point is that, you know, and it's never well developed, but the, there's an, again, there's an implication that there's a mystic component to this. But like I said, I mean, you know, I don't know to what extent that stuff might have ended up on the cutting room floor or if it was just a, 
you know, screw it, we're just having fun kind of thing in the movie, you know. Right. Um, a lot of movies, I a lot of movies, you know, the screenplay is excellent, and then over time during the production process, depending on how many producers you have, people have their own ideas about what it should look like, and it can be it can be despoiled if there are too many interventions on behalf of the people financing. Exactly. So, you, know. you know, one other inconsistency too is when Doug is hung upside down in the fish tank and drowned. His face looked like it had been in the water for a week. Um, then he gets yeah. reanimated and he's perfectly fine. So I, I, I almost have a feeling they just wanted to make a cool dead Doug face. Yeah, know, I agree. In terms of effects. I agree. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To maximize the shock value. Yeah. So, but then again, I mean, maybe if he drained his face out, it would go back to some semblance of normalcy. I don't know. So, but yeah. why are all these like, why did the, why did the fat, the, the uh, mag, you know, the the incredibly fat biker zombie with three noses have three noses. Right. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's like it's almost like they took three people and sort of merged them into one zombie. Right. You know? Right. Or you know, it, it it reminds me of that wonderful scene. Actually, it's more than one scene in Bride of Reanimator, in which uh, Herbert West treats this creature that's a series of fingers with an eyeball on it that crawls around. And uh, and his, uh, his the doctor that that is his partner says, Herbert, you have to stop this morbid doodling with human body parts. You know, because <laughs> at the end they, you know, in the end in the crypt scene they they show all of these abominations that Doctor West has created. You know that are that are like people fused together and you know like you know unspeakably horrific shit. You know, because he can't, you know, it's it's funny because it, it reveals his character. He's not really interested in actually reclaiming human life. It's it's just he's, you know, it's almost like he, he's like a demented god creating all these things for his amusement. Right. So, so uh, one last thing I wanted to mention about this movie is that um, after Roger Mortis causes the van to explode and he he's put in a body bag and um, he gets up gets out of the body bag and he's just rocking this totally 80s look the way his hair is and oh yeah the miami vice he gets this total miami vice thing going on. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was awesome <laughs> something else i i really enjoyed and it's you know it's another you know this movie what this movie suffers from is the 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 whole in some ways is less than the sum of the parts or the sum of the parts rather is greater than the whole um, because the whole would make, you know, if the whole were better, it would be more organically uh, constructed and better, you know, have more internal linkages and explanations. But, you know, there are lots of little scenes and little things that are so delightful that, you know, you sort of don't, it doesn't matter, right? Right. And so the scene in which Roger Mortis leaves the message for his ex-girlfriend, maybe now girlfriend, coroner and she's already dead right um or the implication at least is she's already been murdered by by uh the coroner her boss right and you know the the fact that he's dead and he's talking to someone who's dead but this dead person can't talk back um there was something really moving about that yeah you know you know everybody's everybody ends up dead but they're back but she's the only one that doesn't come back, right? 
Right. And so there's a there's a sad there's a sad quality to that. that you know, well, if everybody's dead and back, at least I can like, talk to them about it. But <laughs> the one person he really needed to talk to, the one person with whom he needed to resolve his issues, he doesn't get to. And that kind so of fueled his rage poignant. towards the end. Yeah, it's poignant and it's ironic at the same time. Yeah. So, and there are little little things like that. You know, like the like I said, and his girlfriend has these, you know, these mummified or uh, these dead fish in glass. You know? Yeah. It's just, and, and her business is death, and she doesn't like fish dying all the time. I mean, stuff like that. Little, you know, insights into the nature of death and playing with those insights. Yeah. That makes this a much smarter film than it appears to be on the surface. Right, right. One last thing I wanted to mention is um, I found a cool newspaper ad. Actually, I found a bunch of them, but they're all, they're all kind of the same poster for its film run which was May 6th to the 17th in 88. So I'll post that in the, uh, in the show notes here. So Jim, final thoughts on Dead Heat. Well, it's, it's one of my favorite horror movies. And it's, a, it's delightful, it's schlocky, it's postmodern. Um, and it, it's, it's, what I love about it is it's a horror movie and it doesn't, it really is a horror movie, but it doesn't take itself too seriously. And I, I prefer horror comedies. That's what I write. And it's less dark than, it's, it's sometimes I, I write darker than this, but generally it's, it's right in my sort of happy place of movies I really enjoy because, you know, it, it, it really takes a lot of interesting concepts and plays with them. And it has an overlay of all of this really ridiculous uh, innovative stuff at the same time so it's it's philosophical but it's fun at the same time and in some ways that's what the best horror action sci-fi movies are right and that's why i love it awesome you know it's definitely got all the charm of a b-movie with the great cast good special effects and stuff i kind of as i was watching it this time around i was kind of thinking actually in a different approach than what you just said is you know, what if they had tried to take a serious approach with it and have some comedic elements rather than attempt a full-on horror comedy? Um, I was curious to think what that those results might have looked like. Um, there were some some scenes, like we said, that were inconsistent, and I would I would have liked to have seen more in terms of story to sort of explain those inconsistencies. Maybe show us why Mister Thule brings his mysticism to the machine you know, to, the, to how they combine their forces to make the machine work. Because, you know, in, in the room with the machine, the lightning, only what's put on the platform comes back to life. But in the, the butcher shop, everything comes back to life. So, you know, it would have been, I would have liked to have seen them do more of that. And I think for me, as much as I enjoy this movie, and like I said, I watched it a ton of times when it first came out. And I, I, I actually, to this day, still remember most of the lines. But um, I would have liked to have seen better humor from Joe Piscopo with his one-liners. I, I know there was something this time around that they just weren't working for me, and I felt like maybe, like you said, if it was improvised, if they had one more pass through and said, well, why don't you say it this way, or don't go for the obvious joke on this one, that may have improved it, I think. But otherwise, like you said, you know, your assessment's really solid on this movie, and I think I, it's definitely something, you know, people got to check it out. For all the elements in it, like we talked about, 
there was one one liner Joe Piscopo had that was just spot on when when Randy James explains the uh, the death chamber for the test animals, or you know, right before that, she's talking about all the animal testing they do, and Joe Piscopo says um, something like. Um, Fido gets skin cancer, so we don't have to, or something right. like that. You know, just absolutely brutal. You know, that was, that was awesome. fantastic. That was good. That was good. So yeah, all in all, uh, if you're into '80s gore, if you're into uh, you know mashups of uh, buddy cop movies, zombie movies, uh, if you're a zombie completist, there's something for everybody here. I think in this movie, so people should check it out. So Jim, can you tell our listeners where to find you online? Yes. You can find me on Instagram and on Twitter, and I will provide the I'll provide you the addresses so you can put them in the show notes. How's that? Excellent. Excellent. Well, thanks again for joining me today, and I'm looking forward to having you on the show again in the future, whether it be for your next book release or we can talk more horror movies. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to do this. I don't know if you're planning, but maybe one for Death Becomes Her. Oh, um, that'd be interesting. The 19- the 1992 film with uh, with Bruce Willis, Goldie Hawn, and Meryl Streep, which is also a zombie movie. Oh, interesting. So, I had seen it a long time ago, but yeah, you're right. It's funny. I've kind of got Emily 13's slated out, but there's always room in the show to talk on other episodes. So thanks again for joining me today, Jim. Thank you. Okay, folks, thanks for joining us today for our special 2021 13 Days of Hallowtober series where we focus on modern zombie films. You can send your feedback to thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group. Then Is Now podcast is a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so please be sure to check out the other great shows there at thedorkening.com. You can also visit our website at havenpodcasts.com where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and Spaghetti Western movies. And while you're there, please click on the Patreon and Public links to get some exclusive stuff, especially a show that you cannot get anywhere else. And Then Is Now is on YouTube, so please visit youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page and also share the video versions of our podcast with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. Don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review so that more listeners can find us. You can find us on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Class dismissed. Now podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media.
For more shows like the one you just heard, check out the Dorkening Podcast Network at thedorkening.com.